Well, good morning to all of you, and uh, that was beautiful reading, wasn't it? Uh, just as we thought about this magnificent text that we're going to look at. I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, as Bill has said, I have the joy of uh, serving uh, Christ community. I've been around a long time, uh, but it's a, just a treat to be a part of our Brookside campus. And so I've, I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet. I'm looking forward to after the service, and I'm delighted to serve with Bill and his team here. Um, it's just a, a wonderful delight. And this text this morning is really amazing. Uh, When we think about Romans chapter 8, many biblical scholars have said this is the finest New Testament text of all the New Testament. Uh, And uh, we're in for a treat as we look at God's word this morning because it's truly awesome. Uh, And uh, I want to encourage you to engage in it with us. I don't know about your Christmas tradition, but uh, this Christmas, one of the things that we are really looking forward to is to see the great Christmas movies that are coming out. Uh, The one that is on top of our list is Les Mis, Right? I mean, there's something about this movie and uh, this production. I've seen it all over the world. Uh, It is something that captures most of our experience. We know that it was written by Victor Hugo and is seen as the finest novel, perhaps, of Western literature. Why is it that way? What is it about Les Miserables that is so compelling Well, I want to suggest to you that Les Miserables captures the cry of a human heart in a broken world. I'm a (laughs) crybaby. I mean, I just cry easy, so if I cry this morning. (laughs) But every time I see this performance, whether it's live or on the movie screen, I cry. And there's one place in particular, well, there's actually two, Bring Him Home, the song, but there's another place where tears just overwhelm me. How about you? Are there certain places? One of the places that tears overwhelm me in, overwhelm me in Les Miserables is when Fontaine sings the great song, I Dreamed a Dream. Fontaine captures, I think, the human heart in her cry, in our cry for a world that ought not to be. Now, I'm not going to sing the song, aren't you glad, this morning? <laughs> but I'd like to share with you, just a reminder, maybe you can... Think of Susan Boyle or some other moment. Sometime you've seen this and to hear the words. I want to highlight just a few of the words for you. I promise I won't sing it. I'm I'm wrestling not to sing it, but I won't. (laughs) Fontaine captures the cry of our hearts in a world that is not what it ought to be. Better than anyone I know. These are some of the words. There was a time when men were kind and their voices were soft and their words were inviting. There was a time when love was blind And the world was a song, and the song was exciting. There was a time when it all went wrong. I dreamed a dream in time gone by, when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid, and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. But the tigers came at night, with their voices soft as thunder, as they turn your hope apart, as they turn your dreams to shame. And then she says, I had a dream my life would be so different than the hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. And then she says these words, now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Life has a way, doesn't it? Whether you are younger, whether you're older here today, whether you're part of the who's who of the world, or as I say, I'm always a part of the who's that. 
Life has a way of killing the dream in our hearts, of shutting down the song when we were young. Life has a way of tearing our hope apart, doesn't it? Why is that? Well, I want to suggest to you that suffering pain characterize a world perhaps better than anything else we experience as human beings. I remember as a 10-year-old boy, and no 10-year-old boy should have to experience this, watching on a cold spring day my father's casket lowered into the grave. How do you process that at 10 years of age? How do you process it at 70 years of age? Answers are elusive. This past week, we as a city felt the pain of a broken world, didn't we? As a high-profiled Chiefs player shot his girlfriend and then took his own life. We cried, we wrestled all across our city wondering, how do we explain this? There's something about our world that has gone badly wrong and we feel it almost every day. Sometimes we feel it in a 2 a.m. wake-up call when the phone rings and our sleep is disturbed. And you know that moment when your stomach, especially as a parent of older children, is in your throat. Because 2 a.m. usually doesn't mean good news, does it? But it's not just that moment. It may be a failed business that we have worked so hard to hold together and it's just gone downhill. It may be a relationship that we have that we cherish at school or at work and it has gone down. Maybe it's a marriage that we have worked so hard to hold together and it is just crumbling in front of us. Maybe it's a stinging rejection. You know what that's like? Getting at peers at school or you're home alone on Friday night or you're defriended on Facebook. All of us experience across the fabric of humanity the sense of pain and suffering But isn't it interesting that we don't shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, that's nice while it lasted. Why is that? Why don't we just look at suffering and pain in our life and go, oh, well, whatever. None of us do that, do we? Because instead of going whatever, we sigh. We groan inside us. We sense that life is not the way it's supposed to be. We sense the world was something that was designed to be better, something destined to be better, and we feel it deeply. The world we live in was to be something beautiful and something better. We can't always put words to it, can we? We don't have to be a philosopher. All of us feel the deep groanings of pain and suffering. And I want to suggest to you this morning that during the holiday season, sometimes the amplification of that suffering and pain we feel and the loss of song in our heart is even greater the longer we've lived. Because the cheery lights of the plaza, as beautiful as they are, also accentuate the darkness of the world around the plaza, our lives, and your life. We struggle, don't we? We feel the groaning, we feel the ache. What I want to share with you this morning is this text tells us is one of the most extraordinary stories imaginable. Because we wrestle, why are things the way they are? Right? Will things ever get better? Is there any hope for a hopeless world? All of us feel this at different moments of our life. And what are the answers? 
Are there answers to these deep questions? Is there some satisfying answer to the longings of your heart and mine that we feel so deeply at Christmas? The loss, the pain, the struggle, the loneliness, the emptiness. Is there some good news? And what is so amazing, as you heard this text read, is that if we look in the manger and we draw the curtain behind the manger and we see the grand story of a manger, we have the most amazing good news in the midst of a difficult world, in the midst of your pain and suffering, when life has killed the dream within you. And so it's a tremendous privilege for me to begin to look with you and explore with you a text that is truly the most glorious good news for you and the world imaginable. In our Advent series, we are talking about the vast conspiracy, the far-reaching conspiracy of love. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 8, and if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn there with me. Last week, we looked at verses 12 through 17. And I don't know about you, but as I taught this text, it was overwhelming to me that the gospel, the goodness of Jesus, when we embrace him, that we are adopted into a brand new family. No matter what our family's like, we are part of a brand new family. And so the language of adoption of children of sons continues through the genre, this brilliant, logically connected genre of Romans. Romans is not a narrative. It is a link of logical progression of thought, of the chain of thought that Paul gives us. So last week he says we are adopted into a new family when we embrace the gospel. Now notice, in verses 18 through 25, he presents, not only do we have a, uh, are we ushered into a new family, we have a new hopefulness in the midst of suffering. That a world is coming that doesn't tear our hope apart. A life is coming that doesn't kill the dream we dream. So what I'd like to do this morning as we look at this text is to ask two basic questions. If you're taking notes or following along mentally, this is where I'd love to go with you. First is, how do we see suffering? How do we view suffering in light of this text? And the second question is, what are we waiting for? You'll notice the themes of suffering and waiting in this text. So let's raise the first question. You ready? How should we view suffering? Now I want to read verses 18 to 21 and listen carefully as you hear Paul and the very aching of his pen as he groans with the world, with all of creation. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul wants to affirm with us, he feels it with his brilliant inspired pen, with every stroke, that the world has gone terribly wrong. One brilliant New Testament scholar says this well, and I think he hits it. He says, here we have in the Apostle Paul, as nowhere else in the Bible, perhaps nowhere in all of ancient literature, a man who feels with the pain of creation. You can feel the pain in every pen stroke. But notice Paul, as he emphasizes suffering and pain in our world, he doesn't sort of blink, but he doesn't see suffering as absurd. He doesn't see pain as hopeless, not in your life. Paul sees pain in our current world as something that gives us hope. So how does he do that? Now, not too long ago, I got these glasses, sorry, these glasses, um, that are called progressive lenses. What a euphemism. I mean, if you have glasses, they used to be called bifocals. There's nothing progressive about it. It's regressive, actually. 
But progressive lenses allows you to look close, right, when you get a little uh, mature, and allows you to see out. So what Paul is saying, I want you to understand this text, Paul is not avoiding the present suffering of the present, but he's looking at the present in light of bifocal lens of the future. So he is seeing suffering up close. He feels it, but he sees it from a distance. So I want us to put on a bifocal lens. That's what he's doing from a literary standpoint. Now notice in verse 18 how he builds comparison. If you have your text open, you'll notice he compares the present world. He's looking up close in his first bifocal lens. The present suffering, but he's looking far to the future world that is coming. And he has a sense, he says, there's no comparison between the now and the, yet, the next world that is coming. So a couple themes I'm going to press with you a moment about suffering, because all of us feel it. Paul says, how should we see suffering? And I want to do two things here. One, I want you to see it as a wake-up call and as a signpost. Paul looks in the bifocal lens up close, and he says, suffering is a wake-up call for hope. Now, one of the things we love if we have to get up early for school or we have on a business trip, I often travel, and one of the things I do is I back up. I'm freaking out about missing an early meeting. You ever like that? I mean, I'm sort of like Monk, you know, on the TV show Monk. I've got to have three backups because I don't want to miss my 7 o'clock meeting. So I go down to the hotel desk or I call and say, give me a wake-up call for 5.30 or whatever god-awful part of the morning it is. And so I wait for that wake-up call. I don't necessarily like the wake-up call. It kind of irritates me. But it allows me to do what I'm called to do that day. And this is what Paul is doing. Verse 18, the language of it is to say, this suffering around you is a wake-up call. C.S. Lewis uh, picked this up. He said, it's a wake-up call for a world that ought not to be. C.S. Lewis said that the Oxford wonderful literary critic and brilliant scholar, Lewis said that suffering and pain is a megaphone to rouse a dying world. What is the point? Lewis's point is Paul's point. Suffering and pain are not fun. We don't minimize that. We groan. But he says, suffering demands our attention. It gets our attention. Not long ago, uh, I was not very reverend or very right because I slammed my finger, you ever done that? In my door going from my garage to the kitchen. Now, I'm glad you weren't there because you probably heard things said that I shouldn't say as a pastor, right? But all of a sudden, I'm just screaming in pain. You ever slam your finger in a door? I mean, all of life does not matter. I don't care about you. I don't care about the world. I don't care about the physical cliff. I don't care about anything. I'm just screaming. Why? Because pain demands what? Immediate attention. It is a wake-up call that is some, something is not right and demands immediate attention. This is the picture Paul gives us here. Suffering is a wake-up call that the world is not as it ought to be. But it is not only a wake-up call. It is a signpost of the future. Notice Paul alludes to this with this word glory. Maybe you heard an old preacher talk about glory. I don't know how to say that. But glory, we don't use that word in common conversation. When's the last time you texted someone glory? I mean, I don't use that word. But glory is impregnated with meaning in Holy Scripture in the first century. Glory has an Old Testament idea of weight, something that's really weighty and substantive. And it captures the goodness and greatness of God and his good world. And here in verse 19, you'll notice that glory is looking forward. So you have this contrast. Remember the bifocal lens? The progressive lens? You have this picture of present groaning, looking up close, but future glory. And in a progressive lens, there is a transition. 
Some of it is now, but it will all be later. We often talk about what is now, but what is not yet. So Paul straddles the present with the future with this word glory. It is a beautiful picture of God's world and his goodness. So what he is saying is that suffering and the pain we feel is not only a wake-up call to say, the world is not right, something's wrong in the world. It gets our attention. It's not hunky-dory. But it's not only a wake-up call, y'all. It is a signpost pointing us to a glorious future. So suffering is difficult in any worldview. Wherever you're coming from this morning, the problem of suffering in the world is it difficult for a theist or an atheist or a pantheist or any of the worldview. But for the Christian, suffering has a sense to it. And the sense is that it is a signpost that something better is going to take place. It's not how it ought to be. And suffering in the Christian faith is not a stumbling block to faith. It is a signpost to true hope. I want you to keep that in mind. This is Paul's view. Now, Paul uses some amazing language. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice he describes creation. Creation. We are groaning. We feel the pain, right? But all of the natural world feels the pain, too. Paul draws back the curtain of suffering to see the natural world suffering, too. And he uses an amazing phrase. In your English, it is is translated in a lot of texts, waiting with eager longing. Do you see that? Now, we miss this through cultural location and time. But if we go back to the classical Greek, it's only used twice in the New Testament. Paul was a brilliant scholar, and he brings an idea from classical Greek literature from hundreds of years before the New Testament. This word, translated waiting with eager longing, you see that in the text? is used in classical Greek literature of animals craning their neck. You know, like if you have a dog that wants to come into the house, right? They're trying to get into the house or getting out. Or even better in classical Greek is like a racehorse. How many like the Kentucky Derby? You know, I love that. I don't know much about it. But these magnificent animals, I tune in and they're just like beautiful and they're all perfectly, you know, chiseled, and they're just excited to run the race. I mean, that's what they're about. And they're shoved in these starting gates. That picture, right? And they're just shaking with excitement. They're like, we're ready to go, we're ready to go. Massive animals, until that bell rings and the door flashes open, and they scoot out. Well, this picture in Greek literature is a picture of these animals waiting to be released from the starting gate. So Paul is drawing from classical Greek literature to describe nature itself, The trees, the rocks, the sky, everything is crying out to get after it, to be released, and to be what they were created to be. This is the picture that Paul is painting. That is, yes, the animals, the trees, the rocks, all of it, all of it is being held back. It is waiting, but notice, it is waiting for something to take place. What is that waiting? All of creation is groaning with us. We are the crown of creation. That's what we're called in Genesis, right? We're the epitome of God's creation. We're made in God's image. We are the sparkling crown. And fallen creation, enslaved to sin and death that came into the world by us in Genesis 3, is waiting for us to be restored. Eugene Peterson, I commend him to you if you've not read him. In the message, he paraphrases this text so beautifully. Let me give it to you. In the message, he describes these verses this way. He says, the created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. 
Everything in creation is being held back more or less. God, notice the language. See, he understands classical Greek literature. God reigns it in. I love that. Until both creation and all creatures are ready and can be released at the same time into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. This past week, I had a conference call. um, And uh, I like conference calls except when they occur about 5 o'clock at night when I want to go home. But that was the only time several of us around the country could get together. And so I'm sitting in my office. It's 5 o'clock. I'm ready to go home. You know? And uh, a conference call allows me to put it on speakerphone. So I'm walking around the office. And my office windows point west. And uh, I look out my window like 10 after 5 on Thursday. And all of a sudden, there's this magnificent sunset. I mean, my heart, I could feel my heart beating. It was so beautiful. Like jet contrails, it streaked into the sky with orange and red and yellow. The whole western Kansas sky was just brilliant, like it was ablaze. I was in awe. And I had just been reading this text, and it reminded me. As beautiful as this sunset is, this sunset is on tiptoe, waiting to be released. This sunset is not what it was designed to be. This sunset is shrouded with sin and death. It's longing for the new birth of a new world. It, too, is groaning for what it was designed to be. We often miss this about Christmas. The Christmas is a good news story for us, yes, but it is for God's created world. One day that sun is going to be what it was designed to be. And it can't wait for what lies ahead. That is the language of glory. The glory that's to be revealed. But notice, Paul will say through this text that the natural world is waiting for us. If we look back to Genesis, we know that God created a good world. Genesis 1 and 2. Perfect, sinless. Genesis 3. Sin came into the world and this vast conspiracy hit. Death entered this earth. Amazing. And in Genesis 3, we hear the language that God says to Adam and Eve, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed. So when you stop and think about it, what did the dirt do? I mean, the dirt was just being dirt. It didn't deserve this. Have you ever thought about that? See, sometimes we forget that the very fabric of the physical world was unraveled in our sin. It was an event of catastrophic impact. Not one atom on this earth was unaffected. That we truly live in a sin-ravaged planet. No wonder the natural world is groaning with us. Isn't it interesting that the gospel writers... As they describe the first Christmas, Matthew particularly, describes the wise men of the East. Remember that story? They look and they see a star. The star in the East says to them that the King of Kings is born. The creator and redeemer, the one who's going to set the world to right, has arrived on the world. And when I read that text, the star in the East, I say, yes, nature blinked. Nature gave a nod to the newborn king. 
longing, longing to be what it was created to be. You remember in Luke's gospel, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it's called the triumphal entry, when he is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Remember that story if you read the New Testament? He rides in as he's preparing to be crucified. He rides in and they lay the branches and they cry out a messianic psalm, king of kings. It's sort of like the picture of Handel's Messiah, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah. And the people are lining the walk saying, this is the king. And the religious leaders say to Jesus in Luke 19, they say to Jesus, stop that. Don't let your disciples say that. Remember what Jesus says? In Luke 19.40, Jesus says something we often miss. He looks at him and he says, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. This is not just hyperbole. If the crown of creation does not declare Jesus' glory that needs to be redeemed, nature itself, waiting, longing for redemption, will cry out. There's much more there than we imagine. So Paul says that something has gone terribly wrong with his world, God's world. But notice in verses 22 through 25, that now he says, something is gloriously afoot. Look at me at verses 22 through 25. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning, notice that language, together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly. See that repetition. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's our physical bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Do you see what Paul is doing? Paul is painting a word picture, a metaphor. He is saying that all of creation is pregnant. Very pregnant. He gives us a picture of creation being in time's waiting room. And the birth pangs are building. Pain is building. Suffering is building in his world. But there's an expectation that something glorious is afoot. I remember when our first son was born. His name is Schaefer. I had no idea what I was doing as a birth coach. Some of you have been there. You know, we took classes. I had no idea how to do this thing. I couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. I couldn't do my fingers. I couldn't do the breathing. I was a mess. Thankfully, others helped my bride, Liz, that were professionals. And finally, one of them said to me, you know, why don't you just go get some water or something? Because I was a mess. I didn't know what to do in the waiting room. I I just sort of paced back and forth, ran errands. I, I was just a mess. But I was waiting with expectation because something glorious was afoot. And if you've been a mom or you've given birth or vicariously you've been there with a birth, you know it's messy. It's painful. But something glorious is about to take place. And I'll never forget when our precious son Schaefer was born. We'd waited him for years in infertility. We'd struggled. And here was our precious little son, perfect fingers and toes. And all of us at that moment, including much more my wife, Liz, it said, it is worth the wait. Why? Because of a new birth. Paul is saying not only are we born again when we embrace the gospel as his people, the world one day will be born again. That there will be a grand new birth of a beautiful new world. 
and nature's dying, waiting, longing for it to occur. Waiting is hard for all of us, isn't it? I don't like that word, bait. I hate waiting at red lights. You want to see Pastor Tom be carnal, a long red light will kill me or traffic in a big city. I mean, I just, I just come unglued. I mean, I'm like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I hate traffic. And I hate waiting at red lights. And I have to just sort of be patient, be patient, be patient. Tell myself, I want to get there. Or some of you may know what it's like to wait on the phone. This drives me crazy. And a business, I'm just on hold, on hold, on hold. I keep listening to the same music over and over again, right? It drives me crazy. See, we live in a world where we have nanosecond instant information. And we can't stand waiting. But we are called to wait. Christmas time is always a time of waiting. Kids, you know what it's like if you, you know, I don't know why parents do this, okay? Because I'm a real fan of opening your gifts on Christmas Eve. Why parents? Anyway, I'll get into that. But Christmas Eve, waiting, is the longest night. I never slept Christmas Eve. Because I couldn't wait to open my presents. I had to just survive this wait. It drove me crazy. Waiting is hard for all of us to do. But Paul says, we are now called to wait. And it's worth the wait. So what are we waiting for? Notice in this text, in verses 18 to 25, that Paul repeats the word wait three times. Do you see that? Waiting is a theme. And he says, we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And creation is cursed because of us, yes. But creation, he says, will soon ride on the coattails of our redemption. First, we are restored. We are renewed. We are given new birth. And then all of creation is given new birth. It is our workplace. It is our playground. And all of the playground, all of the workplace waits to be released from its bondage and the new heavens and new earth. Jesus said to his disciples, remember, I go to prepare a what? A place for you. The end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, we see that place has continuity between the world now and the world then. That the new heavens and new earth are going to come down to earth. It is a picture of a birth, of a new world, of a world that is like ours but not like ours. It is completely restored, a new earth. And Jesus says, I am making all things new. That's the story of Christmas. This is what we're waiting for. The good news of Christmas is not just for all people of the world. It's not just for every little child, red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. Yes, they are. Amen? But it is also every rock, stream, cloud, tree is also precious in his sight. And they too wait with us for that glorious day when they will be, the, be what they were designed to be. And they groan with us. And Paul says, Christmas means we won't have to wait forever. And we have been given the Holy Spirit as an appetizer that this good world is coming. Notice how he ends this text. Five times in two verses, he uses the word hope. When you hear the word hope, what do you think of? Yeah, I hope I'm going to win the lottery, right? It's too late, by the way. Um, at least the big one. But we think it's something we just sort of wish for. But hope is not a wish dream. Biblically, hope is not something we long for. It is someone who has come to earth and will come again. Hope is someone born in a manger. We must understand that. We wait. Yes, we wait for the world as it is going to be. We groan in our suffering and pain and struggle. And we can say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And like Jesus, when he saw uh, Lazarus' tomb, he wept. 
Because this was not the world he created. But death is not the end because of Jesus' glorious resurrection. One of my favorite stories of Christmas, you all would appreciate this, is how the Grinch stole Christmas. I'm a real fan of Dr. Seuss. You know the story. He's an old Grinchy guy, and there are times I feel like that with all the busyness of Christmas. The old Grinchy guy decides to stop Christmas down in Whoville. And so he does everything he can imagine. He steals their presents, does all that stuff. And you know what happens on Christmas morning? All the Whovilles down in Whoville begin to sing. And there's a moment, and Theodore S. Geisel is brilliant here, and describes the Grinch this way. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? And then he goes on to say he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. I love that. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas means perhaps a bit more. Christmas means a whole lot more. Christmas is good news for you and me, sinners, who need God's salvation by grace. That sin is not the last word. Bondage to sin is not the last word. That we can know Christ. We can be born again. We can have new life. We can be forgiven. We can begin to experience the life we were created to live in a fallen world. But it's good news for a nature, for all a natural world. If our view of Christmas is too small, then our view of suffering will be too big. And we will not wait well for the coming world and the hope we have. And our joy is fickle and fleeting. I don't know about what you're facing this Christmas. But if we begin to draw the curtain on the manger and see the grandeur of the Christmas story, it will transform how we live in the world and how we see it. No matter what your circumstance is, maybe you've lost someone dear to you, maybe you're struggling in your work, in a relationship, looking for a job, whatever it is, the Christmas story gives you hope. It gives a buoyancy. Isaac Watts, one of my favorite writers, Joy to the World. Love that Christmas carol? Isaac Watts hits it out of the park. Because he looks in the manger and he sees the glory of the Christmas story. Listen to these words. He says, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Notice this. Let the earth receive her king. The earth. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And then he says, no more let sin or sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. That is in your heart and mind, and in every rock that you see when you walk out of here this morning. The story of Christmas is grand. And it calls us to wait well. So will we wait well? See, we can rise above life circumstances, our heartaches and pain, if we see the world through a bifocal lens. Yes, the world has gone badly awry, but something glorious is afoot. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. For while we look at the things, we don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen, for the things which are seen are transient. 
but the things which are seen are eternal. What is he saying? He's not saying that matter doesn't matter or the temporal doesn't matter. He's saying we see our world in light of the future world that's coming and the glory of it. Christmas is good news for us. It's good news for the world. Now, whether you're a skeptic here this morning or you're a committed believer, the weight of glory the gospel offers you is stunning. Christmas hope does not need to fade. It just builds greater every day. The good news of Christmas speaks to the desperate and transparent longing of Fontaine's heart. Yes, there was a time when it all went wrong. And you and I feel it. Yes, we live in a world that tears our hopes apart almost every day. Yes, we live in a world that kills the dreams we dream. But Christmas declares, and God's holy word declares this, there is a time coming when it will all be made right. A world is coming that will not tear your hope apart, that will not kill the dreams you dream. This is the grandeur of the manger. Let's look closely in it this Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sense this text opens the portals of hope. It opens our eyes wherever we are to the glory of Christ who came to this earth, who died on the cross, who rose again, who will one day return and set the world aright. And Lord, we celebrate the hope that is ours in the Christmas story. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and friends here this morning that no matter what they face in their life today, the challenges, the heartaches, the pain, the suffering, that they may look with hope through your bifocal lens of a world that is coming, a glorious future. We groan now, Lord, we groan. We groan with creation. We groan with the Spirit of God. But we long for the glory that is to come. Fill our hearts with hope. Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. Hallelujah.